Good morning, everyone. If you would turn in your copies of God's word, please, to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. <coughs> in our passages today, we will examine the concept of priesthood. What exactly is it? And why does it matter? This morning, we'll focus on the high priesthood of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 4. And then this evening, we'll focus on the idea that flows from that, the priesthood of all believers in 1 Peter chapter 2. Our passage today occurs in the context of an argument for Jesus' priestly superiority over the Old Testament priestly system. If you had to boil down the message of the entire book of Hebrews into a single sentence, it would be this, Jesus is better. Well, what is he better than? The author of Hebrews is going to list all kinds of things. He's better than angels, the old covenant law, Moses, the Sabbath, on and on he goes and gives various reasons for that. Now, why would he feel the need to write about such things? Nearest as we can tell, it appears that the author is writing to congregations of Jewish believers during intense persecution by the Roman authorities, probably in the 60s AD. We know that the audience is most likely ethnically Jewish for a couple of reasons. First, the author assumes that the audience already has an intimate knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures um, to a degree that new Gentile converts aren't likely to know. Secondly, as the author talks about all of the ways that Jesus is superior to the things that came before him, he is also warning his audience not to go back to the old ways. Because Jesus is superior and because he has done away with all of the old ways, there is nothing to go back to. You see, these Jewish believers feel the temptation to forsake Jesus the Messiah and go back to their former confession because Judaism attracts less attention from the Roman authorities than does Christianity. If you want to read all the historical details behind this, uh, you can find all of the accounts in Josephus's work, Antiquities of the Jews. But the short version of the story is that in the couple of centuries leading up to the New Testament period, the Roman Empire had a number of unpleasant encounters with the Jewish nation. This was because Rome, normally when Rome conquered a nation, they would require the people to pay tribute to the Roman government and at least pay lip service religion to the Roman gods, lip service worship. Now the Jews, of course, would have none of this. So they were willing to fight hopeless battles against the much larger, much more powerful Roman Empire and they would rather die fighting on the field and be wiped out of existence than be forced to commit federal idolatry. The Romans were in some sense impressed by this strong sense of fidelity that was being shown to the Jewish God. So rather than just destroy them, and thus lose a, set, a, um, a source of revenue, 
they made a variety of concessions, exceptions for the Jewish nation that they didn't make for anybody else. For example, the Jews were not forced to worship the Roman gods, but were instead asked to pray to their god for the health and prosperity of the empire. Now, all of this sounds well and good. We would agree with most of this, except that the earliest Christians, whether Jew or Gentile, didn't publicly identify as a sect of Judaism. They would have said that Christianity had its foundation in Judaism, sure, but they went out of their way to distinguish themselves from non-believing Jews, which meant that they weren't granted the same legal protections that the Jews were, thus exposing themselves to the full wrath of the Roman legion. By the time that Hebrews is written in the 60s AD, most likely under the reign of Nero Caesar, one of the worst Caesars, the audience has already suffered Roman persecution for some time. He says in chapter 10, beginning at verse 33, Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions, because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you need endurance so that when you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. Up to this point, (coughs) these Jewish Christians have bravely endured the hardships that Jesus had forewarned were part of the package deal of being a follower of him. John, uh, excuse me, Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. But by this point in time, these believing Jews are starting to get tired. We can only guess how many years now that they have endured the slander, the theft, the beatings, the imprisonment. And they know that all of that suffering can go away if they will just renounce their faith in Jesus and go back to the way things were before. The author of Hebrews is thus writing to these weary, battle-worn believers, reminding and encouraging them that following Jesus is worth whatever cost may come their way because Jesus is so much better and so much more permanent than anything the Israelite nation had ever experienced before. It is within this historical context that we have just examined that we can now read our passage today in chapter four, beginning at verse 14. If you are medically able, would you please stand out of reverence for the gift and the privilege of the public recitation of the inerrant word of God? Hebrews chapter four, beginning at verse 14. The writer says, therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, Let us grasp our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who has in every way been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace 
that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. This far as the reading of the word of God, you may be seated. These three verses <coughs> at the tail end of chapter four introduce a topic that will extend all the way to the end of chapter seven. And that topic is how Jesus is superior to the Old Testament priesthood. This idea of Jesus' great high priesthood is a grand and glorious truth, but culturally it's often lost on us because we don't encounter or think about the concept of priesthood very often. To fully comprehend this truth and why we ought to rejoice in it, we need to ask a few questions first. Starting with, what is a priest? In the ancient world of the Bible, a priest was, in simplest terms, a mediator between human beings and the gods. The priest was meant to be a representative for the people to God and for God to the people. Why would such an arrangement be necessary? Why couldn't a person just approach God on their own terms, on their own time, and just do any old thing that they wanted to do? It was because of God's holiness, his otherness. Sin cannot come into direct contact with God without being annihilated in the process. This is what R.C. Sproul has called the trauma of holiness. This is an important idea to drill down on because we live in a cultural context that downplays the wretchedness of mankind and the goodness and holiness of God. We can see a primary example of the trauma of holiness in 2 Samuel chapter 6. The Ark of the Covenant containing the Ten Commandments has been in the possession of the Philistines for some time, but the Israelites have finally gotten it back and they're on their way back to Jerusalem. And then we begin reading in verse 3. They set the ark of God on a new cart and transported it from Avinadav's house, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Avinadav, were guard, guiding the cart and brought it with the ark of God from Avinadav's house on the hill. Ahio walked in front. David and the whole house of Israel were dancing before Yahweh with all kinds of firwood instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, sistrums, and symbols, by the way, Brother Mark, can we get all of those for uh, service next week? <laughs> Verse 6, when they came to Nahon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen stumbled. Then Yahweh's anger burned against Uzzah, and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence, and he died there next to the ark of God. This is what happens when unholy human beings come into direct, unmediated contact with a holy God. These ideas of sin and destruction of unholiness go all the way back to God's good creation in Genesis 1 through 3 and the subsequent human fall. Because Yahweh is the eternal creator of all things, he is quite literally the source of all life. 
To turn against him is to choose death over life. When we decide that our own way is better than God's and when we thumb our noses at him in rebellion, we ought not to minimize the fact that we are choosing death over life. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This presents a logistical problem though, especially for the people of God in the Old Testament. How are God's covenant people supposed to dwell in his presence if they can't even come close to him without getting barbecued in the process? This is where the gift and mercy of the Old Testament sacrificial system comes in. We don't often think about it in those terms, but it's true. The temple and the priestly system in the Old Testament was a gift from God so that those people who loved God and wanted to stay near to him could until the time that the Messiah could arrive and set all things right. God ordained the temple in Jerusalem as a special sacred place that he would inhabit in a special way that he didn't in all of the rest of creation. But why was that necessary? Why is this concept of sacred space versus common space a necessary thing? We see Yahweh concentrating his presence in Israel's first sacred space, the tabernacle in the wilderness, in Exodus chapter 40, beginning at verse 33. Moses finished the work of building the tabernacle. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested upon it. But then that moved more permanently to the temple in Jerusalem once Solomon finished building that. 1 Kings chapter 8, beginning at verse 10. When the priests came out of the holy place, <coughs> the cloud filled Yahweh's temple. And because of the cloud, the priests were not able to continue ministering for the glory of Yahweh filled it. Now, while it's true that God can be contacted from anywhere, his special presence in one particular place was a means for people to draw close to him without being consumed by his holiness. The central place where God's presence was most especially concentrated is often called the Holy of Holies, or more simply, the holiest place. From there, his holiness spread out in gradations, with the farthest out ring being the covenant borders of Israel itself. So long as a believer was in the country, they were on Yahweh's turf, as it were. They were on holy ground, and they were guaranteed a certain amount of protection through that. It can be helpful, helpful to think of God's holiness a bit like radioactivity. The closer you get to ground zero um, in Chernobyl, the more you're putting your life at risk from radiation poisoning, even today, nearly 40 years after the explosion. In a similar way, the closer that an Old Testament believer got to the holiest place in the Jerusalem temple, 
the lower the number of people who could approach and the less frequently they were allowed to do so. You didn't want to get too close lest you risk holiness poisoning, as it were. At ground zero, in the holiest place, where the Ark of the Covenant's lid formed the footstool of God's throne, only the high priest was allowed to enter. And even then, he could only do it once per year. And even then, he had to fill the room with smoke first so that he would not behold God's glory directly. And even then, he had to sacrifice the life of an animal as a substitution for the consequences of his own sins. And that last requirement brings us to our next question. Why were the sacrifices necessary? Have you ever, excuse me, have you ever read the Old Testament law and thought to yourself, what's with all the killing? Why was sacrifice such an integral part of maintaining relationship with God in the Old Testament? Spend any amount of time reading through Leviticus and do a little bit of extrapolated math, and you will realize that the Israelites must have killed a lot of bulls, goats, and sheep over the centuries. Simply put, what's going on in the temple is the concept of a life for a life. I mentioned earlier that because God is the creator of all things, he is the source of life, and to rebel against him is to therefore choose death. This explains Uzzah's fate as a rebellious Israelite coming into presence with God's, or coming into contact with God's presence. And it also explains why we can't come into God's presence on our own terms, by our own merits. Now we, as post-New Testament Christians with the entirety of scripture at our disposal, we already know how the story ends. We know that Jesus is going to be the ultimate solution to the problem of separation between God and man. But Old Testament Israel was going to need some kind of stopgap measure to continue in their relationship with God until such a time as the Messiah could arrive. Animal sacrifice was only a temporary solution because, as Hebrews 10.4 puts it, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Sacrificing an animal in your place was essentially managing the symptoms rather than treating the disease. It's like if you're experiencing crippling migraine headaches, um, but all you're doing is taking painkillers. Whatever the cause of your migraines might be, whether it's lack of sleep, stress, uh, you might just be genetically prone to it, whatever the case is, the painkillers aren't actually doing anything to fix the problem. They're just numbing the pain receptors in your brain so that you can get through the next few hours. We've got a similar situation going on with trading a life for a life in the form of animal sacrifice in the Old Testament. The death of that bull or goat could ritually purge sacred space so that you could stand near to God's holiness, his presence, without being consumed. But it couldn't do anything to absolve you of your guilt before God. It could do nothing to fix our sin nature. It was managing the symptoms, but it was not curing the disease. 
Although animal sacrifice in the Old Testament was, in one sense, a gift from God because it allowed his people to stay near to him, it was ultimately a short-term solution to a long-term problem. And this brings us to our last question. So why is Jesus the better option? We've now spent some time looking at examining the logic behind the Old Testament sacrificial system. So we now have a better backdrop against which to understand why the author of Hebrews thinks that Jesus' priesthood is such a great thing. Read with me again Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 15. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. I've highlighted those two phrases, Son of God in verse 14, and tempted in every way as we are in verse 15, because the two natures of Jesus, both divine and human, are precisely the reason that he is the perfect high priest. Son of God, in verse 14, is not just an honorific title. You'll find all manner of cults and secularists out there who will try to make arguments that Jesus' earliest followers didn't really believe that he was a God. That was a development that came later on in church history. Now, the short answer to that, accurate, that accusation is bunk. We don't have time to go into all the details here, but by this point in the letter, by chapter 4, the author of Hebrews has already gone out of his way to proclaim that Jesus is fully and truly God. In fact, I would go so far as to say that Hebrews chapter 1 is one of the strongest texts in all of the Old Testament for proving Jesus' divinity. It's a very useful chapter if you ever happen to get in conversation with Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or the like. For our purposes this morning, it must suffice to simply say that Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 acknowledges Jesus' divine nature. And then verse 15 highlights his human nature. He is not just God. He is God in human flesh. Just as he is fully and truly God, so he is fully and truly man. In this way, he is able to do perfectly what the Old Testament priests could only do imperfectly. He perfectly represents both man to God and God to man. Remember this image from a few minutes ago. Maybe we can understand how the priests could act on behalf of the Israelites well enough, that, that first half of the equation. But how in the world were sinful, rebellious, imperfect human beings supposed to represent a perfect and a holy God? They couldn't. By contrast, because Jesus has one foot in each camp, as it were, he is the perfect candidate to be a mediator between the two. He succeeds where others have failed. Because of his humanity, Jesus fully identifies with and represents us. 
in a way that bulls and goats cannot. Because of his divinity and his sinlessness, he satisfies God's wrath against sin and imputes righteousness to us in a way that bulls and goats cannot. Because of this reality, the author then says in verse 16, and this is a bold, audacious claim, therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in times of need. Now to the ears of the original audience, this is a radical and controversial statement indeed. Approach God boldly? No one has ever heard of such a thing. Not only did you have to worry about holiness poisoning, as I mentioned earlier, but in most other religious systems, approaching a God in its temple was little more than high stakes gambling. Let me explain what I mean by that. The entire religious enterprise in so many pagan religions boiled down to this. You bring something to the temple. You bring something that the God wants. You recite a particular kind of prayer that's meant to try to capture the God's attention because let's face it, he might be busy. And you've got to hope that you've caught them on a good day. Thankfully, a few of these pagan prayers have actually been preserved in the historical record. One of them comes from a Roman historian named Cato the Elder. He wrote a book on agricultural advice about 150 years before Jesus. And at one point in this book on agriculture, he writes, When thinning a grove of trees, it is essential to observe the following Roman ritual. Sacrifice a pig as a propitiatory offering and repeat the following prayer. Whether you are a god or goddess to whom this grove is sacred, as it is proper to sacrifice to you a pig as a propitiatory offering for the dis disturbance of this sacred place, and therefore for these reasons, whether I or someone I have appointed performs the sacrifice, provided that it be performed correctly for this reason, in sacrificing this pig, I pray in good faith that you will be benevolent and well disposed to me, my home, my family, and my children." For these reasons, therefore, be honored by the sacrifice of this pig as a propitiatory offering. If you wish to plow the cleared land in the grove, offer a second propitiatory sacrifice in the same manner, but add these concluding words for the sake of doing this work. Notice how long-winded and repetitious this prayer is. Most pagan prayers are like that. And in fact, a key feature of pagan religion was that you had to get these prayers exactly word for word correct. If you messed up and fumbled at any point, you had to go back and start all over again. Because these prayers were essentially magic spells designed to try to get the God's attention and bind them to act in one way or another. So I guess it didn't work for me because I'm pretty sure I stumbled a couple of times in reading that. It is not going to work the way that you want it to if you don't say it exactly right. This is the practice that Jesus refers to in the Sermon on the Mount when he says in Matthew 6, beginning at verse 7, when you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles do since they imagine that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them because your Father knows the things that you need before you ask. 
The pagan gods didn't care one bit about you unless you had something to offer them. When you consider how dismal, fearful, uncertain, coldly transactional is so much of pagan religion, both ancient and modern, because there are lots of pagan religions today that operate on those same basic principles. When you consider how miserable that is, how sharply does that contrast with our relationship to our Heavenly Father through our mediator, Jesus Christ? That's why the author of Hebrews makes the radical revolutionary statement in Hebrews 4 verse 16 that we may approach God's throne with confidence to find mercy and grace. No one else can say that. No one else dares to say that. And I think we almost don't even need to ask at this point, (laughs) ask this time, so what? The implications of this morning's text, I would think, are now quite obvious. The dividing curtain in the temple has been torn. We who were once enemies of God have now been adopted and called children of God. Not only are we allowed to approach the throne of grace, but we are even encouraged to do so boldly and confidently as a child would approach a loving parent. Upon what basis? Upon the fact that justice has already been done. Wrath against sin has already been satisfied. And all of this has been perfectly done by our perfect and great high priest, Jesus Christ, who is both the perfect sacrifice and the perfect sacrificer, the perfect priest. I hope that this message has brought believers in the room a moment of peace. It's easy to get focused in on our own performance, and we frequently ask ourselves questions like, have I done enough for the Lord this week? Have I had enough emotional highs in my worship time? Is he going to cast me out of the family because of that big sin that I committed? You know, I'd be willing to wager that every person in this room has committed some big sin in the past month. And I'm not talking about little things like getting angry at the guy who cuts you off in traffic. I'm talking about the big sins that make you feel like a worthless piece of garbage. Man, I've really done it now. Surely God doesn't love me anymore because I did X, Y, and Z. Maybe I should do some community service for a few months, see if I can sneak my way back into God's good graces. Brothers and sisters, we should already know. We should already know this basic fact, but I will remind you that that's not the way that it works. If you are a blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ, he has died once for the payment of all of your sins. He is your perfect high priest, your perfect mediator. He he has done the work so that you need never worry about being unadopted from the family of God. 
Now there's also a separate conversation on the other side of the coin that could be had as far as the Heavenly Father expects his children to live according to a certain standard that honors him. That's true. But the point for right now is that when you fall short, which happens every day, your Heavenly Father loves to forgive you when you repent. Just like an earthly father or mother loves to forgive their children when they recognize that they've done wrong. And for those of you today who may not yet be redeemed or who would like to know about this peace that surpasses all understanding that we have with our maker through the high priest, Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to come forward in a moment to speak with one of our deacons who will take down some of your information and get a quick testimony from you so that we can contact you later this week and tell you more about this great high priest that we love and serve. Let me pray for us. Thank you, Jesus, our great high priest, that when all else failed, the Old Testament is a long record of all the ways that we screw up. Thank you that when all else failed and human efforts were proven to be ineffective, you were born in a manger in Bethlehem. You lived the perfect life that we could not. And you died the death that we deserved so that all who call on your name and place their believing loyalty in you will be redeemed. And on the final day of judgment, that crowd of people who have been mercifully redeemed will be so enormous. And we will praise you that through all of history, you were at work to redeem so many souls. Thank you for purchasing our redemption. Remind us always that we are yours, that we cannot do anything to undo the work of our high priest. His goodness, his holiness, his perfection is stronger than our imperfection. And that is a grand and glorious truth that I pray will stay in our minds for all the rest of our days. Through the name of Jesus, our great high priest, we pray.